Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. It's Toby Miller here, and I'm with my new friend and new boss, <laughs> Ricky Kirsten. Professor Ricky Kirsten, how are you? I'm very well, thanks, Toby. Now, you've just arrived here. We're in Perth in Ricky's office, where she has as decoration some of the best cardboard available in Western <laughs> Australia. <laughs> yeah, since arriving about six weeks ago, I actually haven't had time to unpack. I've been right. too busy doing the job. And you're a dean. I'm now a dean. Funnily enough, I did a podcast with a dean in Colombia last week, and I asked her what it was like. And? She said the big thing is not to be the boss. That's very clever. I don't know if I can be that um, astute this early. <laughs> I'm too busy to be clever at the moment. Well, she's been doing it for a couple of years, and ah. she's quite a lot older than you, so... A, she may be wrong, maybe she, B, she may be lying, <laughs> but C, she's not rushed off, off her feet like mm. you are. So you've just come to be Dean of the School of Arts at Murdoch University, but prior to that, you were at the Australian National University, yes. ANU, where you were a professor of Japanese studies? Um, modern Japanese things? political history. Modern Japanese political history. Mm. And there are several books with Japanese write lettering on them. Yes, that, that's right. The office is the full room. of them. I, one thing that I really strongly believe in is when you're researching Japan, you've got to be able to read and listen to what the Japanese are saying themselves. Mm, mm, mm. And so everything I do is based on Japanese sources. When I was a st I actually did my undergrad degree at that university and Arthur Stockwin taught ah, us. Yes. And he was one of the first people in English who did a political science PhD on Japan who actually learnt the language. That's right. That's this was right, in the days indeed. when even anthropologists often didn't bother to learn yeah, the language. Yeah, but Arthur it. did, didn't he? Yes, he did. And he did it extremely well. Yeah, well, that's good to know. Because he ended up, I think, he didn't he get like the Nissan chair at Oxford? Of... Nissan chair. He was my professor. Oh, for was my, he really? For my PhD. Oh, he's, he's my big sensei. Ah. Well, my dad supervised his PhD. Oh, no. How's that for multi-generation? When my father JD, died... JDB. Yeah. Mm. When my father died, Arthur, who was a wonderful teacher to me, although mm. a little to be desired in the trouser length leg, I thought. You know, he never had long enough trousers. But he was a wonderful professor uh, to me as an undergrad. Very generous and brilliant. Lanky but sweet. Lanky <laughs> That's how we like our men, as the saying goes <laughs> here in the West. No, but in all seriousness, so Japanese political history... Mm. And Japan is in this strange position now where mm. it's gone from, in the United States, when I arrived, still being about to take over the country, to being somewhere that went backwards for 20 years due to economic stagnation, to being something irrelevant next to China. Still the third biggest economy in the world. And people forget this. So there's this um, incredible discrepancy between Japan's actual weight in the world, people's perception of Japan's weight, and most intriguingly, Japanese people's own perception of their influence and value in the world. Uh -huh. There is this correlation between economic power and conventional power politically expressed, whether that be through defence or trade or, or any mm -hmm. other forms. Mm -hmm. What's interesting, though, is that Japan deliberately chose to be a lopsided superpower after 1945. They didn't want to be the conventional balanced power mm. with a full defence force. 
and answer... Well, were they, sorry, would the Americans have let them, actually? They wouldn't have let them initially, but very quickly, indeed, when the Korean War broke out, they needed Japan to step up to the plate, and the Korean mm. War actually re-energised Japan's economy to the point where they recovered to their pre-1945 levels of prosperity. Oh, that quickly? I didn't very know. Very quickly. Ah, ah, mm. okay, okay. Because certainly, you know, both... The United States clearly tried to remake both Japan and Germany in its own image, minus militarization. And is that possible, minus militarization? <laughs> and indeed, they, they were fudging because, of yeah. course, Okinawa was retained as a major base for um, US forces stationed in, in the so called Far East. <laughs> Wonderful expression. But also, that. there are many um, bases scattered throughout the Japanese archipelago mm. that perform this function also. Mm. So, mm. I think it's disingenuous to say that Japan was totally denuded of military force. In fact, they were denuded of sovereignty yeah. to facilitate the US performing the role of defence um, for Japan yeah. uh, throughout the post-war period until very recently when things have become even more interesting. So the narrative that non-experts like myself get is that there is this long-standing and developing vein of Japanese nationalism that is unrepentant about the 37 to 45 period in China, unrepentant about Korean comfort women and the occupations of Korea, completely unrepentant, and that this is the, the group that is pushing for a really autonomous and significant military force to become an international player. Ooh, there's a lot to unpick there. Um, it would be doing the majority of Japanese voters a great disservice to assume that the person who is Prime Minister of the country, Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, actually represents uh, this particular view. This is a deeply held commitment by Mr Abe as an individual. Mm-hmm. He has uh, about 100 or so members of the Japanese parliament who support this particular position. And his position is more complex than is made out. It's not just about lack of repentance, although lack mm. of repentance is an essential component. It's about restoring legitimacy to patriotism. Mm. So mm. here we have, and, and from one perspective, why not? Uh, Japan has been a pacifist power, a positive contributor to international peace since mm -hmm. 1945. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Japan has been a major aid donor. Mm -hmm. Japan's national identity is unequivocally pacifist in nature. The national self-image is of Japan as a pacifist country. This is overwhelmingly the view of the majority of Japanese. When Prime Minister Abe is elected with his strong mm. views, which include a reading of the past that wants to um, perhaps put some moral ambiguity into the outcome of the war, the idea, for example, that only the losers were um, ethically or morally bankrupt, he challenges that. Well, so he, would I. <laughs> well, but he also denies things, um, atrocities, uh, that no sensible person, uh, knowledgeable of the past, could possibly countenance. 
But the mistake is to assume that because he is Prime Minister, he represents the views of the country. So we have this dilemma today mm. where Japan, um, the average Japanese person, I would go so far to say the average person regards themselves as Japanese to be pacifist. They regard their democracy to be totally dependent on the integrity of that pacifism. Mm. When a Prime Minister or any person of power wants to meddle with that calibration between mm. pacifism and um, democracy, it inevitably is interpreted as besmirching the integrity of democracy itself when you talk about security, when you talk about overturning Article 9, the pacifist clause of the Constitution, mm -hmm. you are making not just a statement about security policy, but about the integrity of Japan's post-war democracy. The problem is Abe goes to the election with Abenomics. It's an economic policy. Abenomics. He does not go to the election with a security policy. He does not go to the electorate saying, I'm going to revise Article 9. Although most people know he wants to, this is not what has been endorsed by the country mm, at large. Mm, mm. And it is very difficult to explain to Koreans, to Chinese, indeed to anybody, that the Prime Minister doesn't Speak represent the nation. Well, and of course, people like me who are relying on the BBC and the New York Times are very easily confused and surprised by this. Um, now, can I ask you whether the Japanese as broadly construed, have the same kind of paranoid relation to the rise of China that the US does? Oh, it's it's not the same kind. They have their own kind. <laughs> Understandably. Uh, uh, well, Proximity. It's, it's a very complex relationship. Yeah. Because historically, and if we go back over a number of centuries, we see um, this, uh, a pendulum effect happening between mm. Japan and China. Mm. We see Japan learning how to manage a modern city and a mm. modern government mm. from China. Confucianism, not Neo-Confucianism, initially being very influential and then having a comeback again in the form of Neo-Confucianism. So the notion of good government, of modernity, mm. of proper process and how to manage a country, this is something learnt from China. China was the hallmark of civilization for Japan as it entered modernity itself. Pendulum swings when Japan becomes modern and prosperous and an industrialized society mm. and economy. Mm. China sends its youth to Japan to learn the secrets of Asian modernity. This deal is broken when Japan violates its position as leader of Asia, um, first amongst many, uh, with its policies of aggression. The greater Southeast Asian co-prosperity sphere. Being one thing, but it starts really with Korea, the annexation of Korea in 1910. Mm. So Japan is aspiring to be equal with the Western powers from the mm. Treaty of Versailles onwards. It sees itself as one amongst the Western powers. And it was there. It was, it was at the table, yeah. um, although this was a cheap... Um, victory for Japan, which never really had to mm. go to war mm. itself, but supported mm. the winning side and won the spoils of war, mm. the um, uh, colonial possessions and territories uh, formerly held by Germany mm. in particular. Mm. So 
we have this pendulum effect going where Japan is perceived to be a leader, a pioneer, supposed to be pulling the rest of Asia with it. War comes, but this same phenomenon returns. Japan becomes a miracle economy. Japan's uh, misdeeds are forgiven with the assistance of the US. Reparations mm. are discontinued. Mm. Treaties are signed that agree to draw a line under any um, question of compensation, guilt or, or apology. Japan's miracle economy is again embraced by China and the rest of the region as a good thing. Japan is energising Asia economically, inventing new systems um, of wonderful industrial, post-industrial society and economic management. And isn't it interesting when Japan's uh, wealth declines, and it's, it's a relative decline from such a high base, mm. as mm. you pointed out, mm. that with it, Japan is losing its integrity as, as a leader, as a spearhead mm. in, in the region, in the world, and in, in its own eyes. Isn't that curious? If Japan is proud of its identity as mm. a pacifist nation, that hasn't been affected by its change in economic fortunes. It's the relative identity vis-a-vis -vis China that's become the problem. Mm -hmm. And that's what Japan is struggling with now. Yeah, yeah. whereas I think the US has a bit of that, although obviously with a less complex history, and also a fear of being overtaken economically, mm -hmm. which I suspect, if it happens at all, will not happen for very long. But that's another But do you know, argument. when we talk about overtaken, the financial and global economic systems are so enmeshed and intertwined. Mm. Where does something stop being Japanese and start being Chinese? Mm. Chinese prosperity is partly built on massive foreign direct investment from Japan. Yeah. Um, Japanese industry is setting up offshore in China. Um, if you go to those places where the Foxconn employees committed suicide in southeastern China, you drive past, you see road signs that are in English and Japanese. And indeed. Not in Mandarin. In, indeed. So it's perception is very powerful, as anyone who watches stock markets knows. Mm. It doesn't have to be true. It's what you believe to be true. And I think this is a major driving force at the moment in An the region. Animal instincts. Yeah, but it's also about relative power, about counterbalancing influence. So it's not just a bilateral relationship. Mm introduce the US. Mm -hmm. So is this going to be a G2? Many Japanese wonder. Is the US and China the only game in town? Or is Japan going to remain the number one best friend of, of the great remaining superpower of the world? Right. The whole of Southeast Asia is part of this game. Mm -hmm. Relative influence between China and Japan in ASEAN is the most dynamic, watchable show uh, that's occurring right now. Yeah. Now, th th this is the Association of Southeast Asian yes. Nations, which at least I found very amusing in its constant rejection of Australia as a <laughs> member when this was happening. Mm. Uh, tell us about that show a little bit, because ASEAN is not something you hear about very much in the US. No, I imagine not, although if we look closely at uh, the Obama administration's um, security and foreign policies, the so-called rebalance, mm -hmm. uh, previously known as the pivot. Right. 
i.e. NATO um, doesn't matter except, whoops, now it does. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I think it's a bit more sophisticated than that. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I hope so. I, I, well, they, like, they are saying that it is more sophisticated than that. But it, it's, if we look at the rebalanced policy and the substance of it, the rediscovery of the importance of Southeast Asia yeah, yeah. for US foreign policy yeah. is unmistakable. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. we can see this is echoed in Japanese foreign policy, the renewed uh, focus. Abe has now visited every ASEAN member nation since returning to power. Hmm. And that is not accidental. It's very deliberate. It is the engine of future prosperity in the region. And Japan, frankly, needs ASEAN to counterbalance the rising influence of China in the region especially the South and East China Seas. ASEAN can't counterbalance China without Japan. So this relationship is becoming absolutely crucial mm -hmm. if we're going to avoid a situation of a big brother monstering um, other mm -hmm. member states. Mm -hmm. But gee, isn't Japan making it difficult with policies um, or positions um, articulated by Prime Minister Abe? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. He's the kind of Iranian president um, figure, isn't he? Presidential figures like uh, Ahmadinejad, where yeah. madness comes out of his mouth on various topics that is then associated with the nation in general. It's, yeah, I, he's, he's not crazy. He's, he's a conviction nationalist, I think is a good way to describe him. He is... Pursuing an individual agenda in a position of power, and that's something I have trouble with. And the way he's doing it is also problematic. And it speaks to this core issue of a nexus between security policy and democratic integrity. For example, when he passed the Secrets Bill uh, in December last year, this was done in such a way, gagging debate um, choking off discussion in committee, forcing it onto the floor of parliament in the middle of the night. Thousands of people on the streets protesting what was happening, forcing the bill through using his parliamentary majority. In Japan, this is unmistakably regarded as tyranny of the majority, even though no laws were broken mm -hmm. and this was democracy at work. This is a clear example of how security policy is widely perceived in Japan as being antithetical to a genuine uh, democracy in contemporary Japan. That's the problem with it. It's not just about one individual and his principles. It's the damage that's done to this really deeply entrenched coupling of democracy and pacifism in the post-war period. Sure. Wow, that's wonderful. I can't tell you how much I'm learning. Now, I'm conscious of time because you've We've been talking for 20 minutes. We've got about another 20 left. Seems like 10 seconds, Toby. <laughs> I'd love to focus in the time we've got left on some of your work. Mm. Now, I know that you've taken on this massive administrative managerial <laughs> shepherdess <laughs> cat herding role. Yes. Um, does that mean end of research? Absolutely not. Um, it's quite the opposite. And this was the appeal of this position. Uh-huh. That... The Chancellor, the Executive of the University, the Vice-Chancellor in particular, um, wants scholars to lead the institution. Not administrators, not bureaucrats, not paper pushers, but people who are thinking, 
people who have a research agenda mm. and who mm. use this to guide administrative decision-making and to inspire the institution. It, it sounds naive and idealistic, but every single dean who's now working at this university is here because they bought into that. So, got some current projects? I've got, I've got several current projects, uh -huh. actually, and uh -huh. it has something to do with what we've been discussing. I've been interested in, in this nexus between uh, security policy and democratic integrity for, for a very long time. And the thing I'm working towards now is a book on Japan's security dilemmas. How does a pacifist nation proactively embrace and develop an autonomous security policy? Now, that, that's the core question. There are all kinds of things buried in that. But it, it looks at things like the need for autonomy, which is something new in post-war Japan. Why would they want to be autonomous? They've had the US as their primary protector. They haven't had to pay substantially for their own defence, although they do support the cost of US um, stationing in Japan. As a result, they've been able to have a free hand with their uh, economy. Why would you want to ditch that? You need the nuclear umbrella extended deterrence that is offered by the US. So why would you ditch it? There is this incredible desire amongst uh, policymakers and bureaucrats in Japan to exercise more autonomy within the US alliance system. And I'm wondering what that looks like. Mm. How can you be more autonomous but yet signed up to the cause? Because they're very autonomous and signed up to the cause as it is. Well, they're not autonomous at all, but well, they're totally signed up. Sorry, by autonomous, I don't mean they're autonomous in defence terms. I mean they're mm. autonomous in how they function governmentally and economically. Yes, so there is, there is this, this incredible disparity between mm. the sovereignty and the separateness mm. of Japan as a nation and the absolute enmeshment mm. in security and defence terms with the US. Quite literally... If we were looking at the East China Sea um, tension without Japan in the US alliance system, we'd be looking at a nuclear-armed Japan. Mm -hmm. That is the end, that, that's the extreme to which it is possible for us to imagine that Japan might have to go if the alliance is in play. Now, it's not in play. No one is suggesting that the alliance is almost over. But when uh, we have a prime minister who causes... Um, inconveniences, uh, nationalising um, a couple of islands in, in the Senkaku Island chain, for example. Um, this makes Japan a security liability for the US because the last thing the US wants is to be forced to intervene to protect its ally in a situation that was really preventable. Now, Toby, this is fascinating because until the Senkaku issue arose, the whole debate in Japan was how do we avoid being entrapped in a US global policy when it comes to defence? This was really on the table after 9-11, as, as we can imagine. And Japan has had to grapple with to what extent are we an ally and are there any borders? Um, and the answer was we are a 100% ally and there are no borders. Japan is a global ally of the US, not a regional one. 
And yet here we have the East China Sea issue and everything is turned on its head. Now it's the US is afraid of being entrapped in a Japanese security agenda. This has put everything in question that we assumed to be deep um, embedded in stone in that alliance relationship. Add to that the economic power of China, the enmeshment of China and US debt, for example, things are changing. Then uh, the rebalance policy. I've just spent a couple of months at the National Library as a Harold White Fellow. National Library of Australia. Yes, yes, in Canberra, looking at how the Obama administration's rebalance policy can be expected to affect Japan's place in the US alliance system. So this is my ongoing contemporary research. I think it's really going to make uh, quite a difference that it's exposing the differences between Japanese and US perceptions of their mutual project. And the extent of discrepancy um, goes beyond superficial political decision-making and it, it goes down to the normative level of what should and shouldn't be happening in an alliance relationship. So this is what I'm working on right now. With the revelations about the National Security Agency that have come out recently, people like me found nothing surprising because right. we assumed all this went on. Did anything come up that embarrassed the US in re-Japan in the way that it did, for example, with Mexico and several other countries? I think there have been um, cascading um, embarrassments. It's, it's reaffirmed um, a number of things, principally that um, there had been a tacit agreement between Japan and the US that US um, military vessels docking at Japanese ports were carrying uh, nuclear weaponry, which goes completely against the publicly released and frequently reaffirmed um, agreement that, that the population at large and even several Japanese prime ministers were told that this would not be happening, that there was an agreement that um, the US would refrain from introducing weaponry into Japanese ports. So um, it's kind of blown that issue right out of the water. It, it was already festering and exposed and then reaffirmed. So things like that, difficult questions over the Futenma Air Base on Okinawa. Um, these are the kinds of issues. Also the extent to which the US wishes Japan would remilitarize or become a so-called normal country, quote unquote, can be seen and has been seen as essentially interfering in matters of national policy in Japan and it exposes the sensitivities of this bilateral mm, relationship. Mm, mm. Wow. That'll be very exciting when that book comes out. You mentioned some other projects. I'm, I'm doing more than one thing at a time. It's, um, it's a little bit... Um, I'm stimulated to do more than one thing at a time, and so I do. One of them, I, I've recently completed a study, uh, a critical study of Operation Tomodachi. Mm -hmm. And this, of course, was the assistance offered by the US to Japan in the aftermath of the 311 triple emergency. And this was a great public relations exercise. You've never seen 
a foreign power gets such good press for what was happening um, in Japan for this um, act of um, selflessness. And, and it was a very significant contribution to the relief effort um, in the Tohoku region in Japan. But I didn't want the PR to write the history and I wanted to look at what was really going on in this relationship and what does it tell us about the mm -hmm. mutual perceptions that underpin the alliance. Mm -hmm. Now, um, it led to a number of fascinating um, findings which will be published later this year in an edited volume by University of Hawaii Press. But basically, she said, plug, shameless plug. <laughs> um, basically, it was about um, testing, uh, rehearsing and performing essentially cooperation and collaboration between military forces under the guise of humanitarian assistance and disaster relief. So there is this... You're surely not attributing <laughs> crass instrumentalism to the great I human am. rights project that is US foreign policy. I am, and I'm doing it because um, in the literature there is this assumption that humanitarian assistance and disaster relief is, is, is beneficial to future military cooperation. But I wanted to expose the extent to which that was true mm. and how much it actually, um, you could separate the humanitarian and the military mm. dimensions mm. of it. So it's a, it's a study of that. And it concludes that while US policymakers uh, believed that Operation Tomodachi would lead to a more seamless transition between humanitarian situations and battlefield situations, in Japanese policymaking circles, there were a number of reservations, and indeed, in uh, the popular sphere, some people reacted to Operation Tomodachi by saying, well, this proves that our self-defence force should only do humanitarian tasks and never do military tasks. And this is not what the PR machine of Operation Tomodachi told us. Wow. So that'll, that's exciting. Um, Ricky, looking back, 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 as they say in baseball, where could people go to find some of your work, some of your earlier projects? Um, probably the defining piece is Democracy in Post-War Japan, which was my uh, reworked PhD thesis published by uh, Routledge. I've got to cast my mind back. This was in um, the mid-1990s, 96, mm -hmm. uh, I think it was published. And I've written quite a few things that develop the themes in that book, really exploring what Japanese think democracy is when it's in Japan, as opposed to some global um, thing that is divorced from identity or subjectivity. I've looked at fascism in the Oxford Handbook of Fascism and how um, Japanese um, readings of their own experience of fascism were coloured by their normative attraction to certain versions of democracy. So I've done that kind of thing. I've really looked at Mariyama Masao a lot mm -hmm. and over the years, of course, since he passed away, collected works have been published, sets of lectures, and now we're getting the generation in Japan who feel that they can't make a name for themselves until they tear him down and stomp him into the mud. And yet the language 
the conceptual language that they use to do that is 100% Mariano Masal, that they couldn't be attacking him in that way and so effectively if he hadn't invented the language of democratic interrogation. So I've done that kind of work. It's, there's some of it available online in um, encyclopedias of political thought and philosophy, for example. Some of it's available in um, edited, um, mm -hmm. edited books. There's a scattering of things around. And my security work is new. I started that in 2006. But these are the things I happen to have oh, in front sitting, of us. Let's see. <laughs> sitting there now. That's the more recent work. New approaches to human security in the Asia-Pacific, China, Japan, and Australia. And you are one of the editors. And that's from Ashgate. And bilateral perspectives on regional security, Australia, Japan, and the Asia-Pacific region. And again, you are one of the co-editors. Yeah, so that's the kind of work right. I'm, I've been doing lately. Now, one of the issues here, surely, is the supposed tension between security and democracy. Yes. One of the things that the great powers and the superpowers constantly used to talk about and still do is the maintenance of security. Right. It's one of the alibis for the United States supporting oppressive regimes in the Arab world, supporting crypto-fascist regimes in Latin America, and engaging in the American war in Vietnam. That democracy is well and good, but you've got to have security first, and you've got to build the right kind of institutions first. Mm. Yeah? So given that your work has been principally about democracy, but is now focusing more on security, do you see an incipient or innate tension there, or are they actually always in some kind of dynamic dialogue? My reading of um, how... Japanese policymakers and intellectuals and grassroots movements have addressed these questions is that they cannot address one without the other. It's always in the background. It shapes the language, the assumptions, the expectations, and, and it places in stark relief the, the, the disappointment. When something doesn't go the way people think it should, um, the response in Japan is often disproportionate to the perceived problem. And this needs to be explained. It's not just a superficial headline-driven thing. It's actually deeply rooted. Um, you do have to consider how democracy and its normative presence is essential to legitimate security policy in Japan. You need to understand why that is so if you're then going to understand why there is tension between the current Japanese government mm -hmm. and civil society in Japan, let alone between other countries. It starts at home. Why is that? It's because of this, the way that post-war Japan um, came into being, it was the narrative that was invented not just imposed by the occupation forces, um, mainly comprising the US. The important narrative was devised by Japanese themselves. And it was seen, basically, that in the 1930s, Japan's democracy was deeply flawed and it failed. It failed systemically, but importantly, it failed in normative terms. Mm -hmm. And this combined with 
the effective takeover of the democratic institutions by military forces in the 1930s led to the disaster of war expansion and imperialism. So the democratic failure of pre-war was the challenge to post-war society, mm -hmm. that if you were going to show that you had changed, you would do so as a genuine democracy that embraced pacifism. And so that's why civilian control of the military in post-war Japan is absolutely a hot-button issue. Um, Never there's any sense that that line is being crossed. There's an explosion of public feeling in Japan. Because of the reading of the past, the present is formulated in that way. You cannot have democracy without pacifism. You cannot have pacifism without democracy. And it's not the American formula that all democracies are naturally inclined towards pacifism. It's not that. It's about the reading of the past and a subjective commitment to shape the future. There's something else too though, and this is a divorce, a perceived necessary ethical divorce between state and society in Japan. And this is Mariyama's number one message actually, that if you allow the state to define the normative um, framework mm -hmm. of your existence in mm -hmm. civil society, then you have abrogated your duty as a subject and as an individual. That ethically you ought to determine your own values and act on those values, albeit within a legal um, context. So it means that in post-war Japan, the existence of a democratic doubt is essential. From a civil society point of view, you have to show you're contesting your um, you're doubting, you're challenging what the government is telling you. You're not falling into line. So anything that smacks of we, the government, speak for you, civil society, immediately brings up these um, really violent emotions because it touches on that core question of democratic integrity. Ricky, I've got one last question for you, if I may. I've been talking too much, Toby. I wouldn't say You've that. You've got me going. I wouldn't say that. Here's my last question. Is this the Asian century? The first part of the question. Second part of the question. What would that mean for Japan? Oh, well, thanks to Egypt, Syria, and the Ukraine, we might be doubting whether this is the Asian century from the perspective of... Um, security and global policy. If we're looking at the catalytic drivers and stimulators of economic growth and prosperity, it's unquestionably the Asian century. We are watching as Vietnam emerges. Um, we can envisage Vietnam as a, as a major force and driver of prosperity in the region. Mm -hmm. We can even see that Myanmar or Burma is, is doing that as well. India much more problematic. Um, obviously a great power but with so many internal challenges that it's going to take a while for India to really um, be the major presence. But if we don't deal with 
Asia and its emerging um, concerns of power balancing, of wealth sharing, of respect for different kinds of institutions, we are going to be spectators while they take the ball and run with it. And Japan? Japan is really in quite a crucial uh, position. Japan can facilitate this kind of uh, growth journey. As a former miracle economy, Japan actually demonstrates to other nations the socio-political and economic consequences of rapid, mm -hmm. intensive growth. Mm -hmm. If you come to it as a, a, a late moderniser, the challenges are even greater. And this is what we see uh, in China at the moment, that it's harder to do it later because the expectations are so different. And we introduce things like uh, climate change policy, emissions, um, transnational problems. Japan didn't have to consider most of those. Uh, ultimately, they were forced by incredible levels of pollution in the late 60s to address them, but not as a global issue, as a transnational element. The asymmetrical nature of threats now demand coalitions and multilateral responses. The region can't do this properly without Japan, and Japan certainly can't do it on its own. Japan has to see that it's at the heart of what's about to happen in the region. Otherwise, it might not succeed at all. Wow. This is climate change is the new Soviet Union and the new Maoism. That's incredibly interesting. Thank you so much, Ricky. I wonder if I can extract from you an undertaking to come back into the pod when your next book comes out, the one that you've almost finished. Very happy to do that, Toby, and you're always welcome. Great. Many thanks. <laughs>